Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast. I'm not mad, arsehole. I just read different books, alright? Welcome to Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast. Hosted by me, Daisy Campbell, Ken's daughter, and David Bramwell. Ken Campbell was one of a kind. An unconventional performer, wordsmith, theatre director, comedian, trickster, and creative powerhouse. For this unique series, we'll be plundering Ken's archive to bring you the best recordings of his one-man shows, as well as other selected treats. So, Daisy, the RDC hoax. Yes. Yes, this is um, Ken telling the story of, um, well, what I think is the is the greatest theatrical hoax ever pulled off, actually. And, um, Which led to a Scotland Yard investigation. Yes, it? oh, it did, <laughs> and, and to him appearing on Newsnight and the whole bit. And um, so, so this is actually a, a story that comes out of a larger one-man show, Theatre Stories, but unfortunately the... The sound quality really isn't that great. Um, And most of the stories that he tells in Theatre Stories we've actually already covered in other episodes. So we thought we'd just keep the the telling of the RDC hoax for this one. So here we go. What I thought I'd um, do for you, um, well, really, is just uh, tell you how uh, my life went astray at, at a certain specific point. Some years ago, 1980 it was, the case of Roger Reese's fruit bowl um, and the contents of it. Um, actually, you need a bit of background before that. Um, I, I think I'll kind of dedicate the talk uh, to the late Lindsay Anderson, filmmaker and uh, theatre director, who died so early the other year. He, um, I mean, I've never been against lovies as such. In fact, I quite like to have been one, but they, <laughs> sadly, they, they, they didn't want me. They didn't like was nice, but they sort of seemed to think that I should be somewhere else. And um, anyway, one of the places I've found that uh, if, if, if you're a non-lovey, that you could be occasionally, not too often, mind, um, was, uh, was with Lindsay Anderson, because he wasn't a lovey, he was a lowly. In fact, the attraction of the geezer was... I don't think he liked anything, or, any, or, 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 or anybody. And if, and if he smiled, he's lit to go down further. That's his amused. But the, um, a little known fact um, about the guy is that he did used to laugh at the, occasionally. It was about every three years or something. And he used to fight it. It would take him over from strange parts of the body, like I've seen him go from the knee, yeah, or <laughs> he's holding it in. And, and anyway, you know, Lindsay took an interest, faintly, in the, when I started going to science fiction conferences, uh, which is kind of about 1971 or two or something like that, and the reason I went uh, was because I belonged to a little outfit of folk who were into doing something that you never do. Every week, like every week, I had to do something that you you never did, you know. And, but, and during that during that first year of the acting, I, I spotted that there were science fiction conferences. Or well, certainly there was one going on at Easter, 
in my station hotel in Newcastle on time. And I said, wow, I'd go to it, because I don't ever go to science fiction conferences. <laughs> but the reason I wouldn't ever have gone normally was I didn't really read science fiction. At school, but I mean, I don't take any great interest in it. Anyway, I think it was, uh, it was marvelous. The thing, the thing about the science fiction conferences, I knew most of the playwrights at that time. They wrote, they Trevor Griffiths, David Hare, Howard Brent, and these sort of kind of guys. They were okay company, I must say, but they weren't anything like science fiction authors. I tell you, I tell you, I mean, because, like, um, when, like, when playwrights get, get a bit pissed, they actually get, they don't they even have better company, to be honest with you. You know, getting there and there and all, you know, like, funny, you know, you just want to get a shovel up, see when a taxi home. <laughs> science fiction authors, I mean, they're kind of different breed. I mean, it's like the, like the pistol they get. The more remarkable they get, and they go on and on, and they don't argue. Whatever you say, and they haven't scolded me, they won't argue with it. You know, and they go, yeah, and yeah, they say, yeah, and yeah, you're right, yeah, and you're good. And then someone's like, yeah, and they're like, why are you right? And I mean, we never used to go to bed at those science fiction conferences. We just build these incredible like, cathedrals of um, ideas there. And on that first one, when I, um, I got talking to uh, Brian Aldis, and, and Brian said, uh, he, he a wonderful guy, all this is. Uh, and he, he, he told me that according to his research is that the bifurcation of the British literature had taken place in 1939, or possibly 38, with the children that number one. I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> 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 anyway, I, thought it was, I thought you know, I was kind of interested in what that might be, but I thought it would become clear, you know, the way it's conversation, but it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I said, 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 of the British literature. What do you mean by that? And he said, bifurcation of the British literature, so it's very easy to understand. He said, if you take um, take H.G. Wells, he said, for example, he said, H.G. Wells was by no means the only one, but he isn't the best known. He said, H.G. Wells, uh, you know, one week you write the history of Mr. Polly, i.e. social realism. The next week you write the shape of things to come. The week after that you write in the War of the Worlds. Then you write a history of the world. And the thing was that whatever Wells wrote, critics, public alike, they say, oh, you keep at it, Wells. The trick stuff, you fuck who you like, it's marvellous. But, but then after 1938, what we did apparently, what we did was we split the literature. Yeah, we bifurcated it. Uh, bifurcated. <laughs> so this meant, after 1938, if you were caught imagining in the stuff you wrote, or it, you know, it turned out you, know, you knew how machinery worked, or you know, how mine worked, even worse, what would happen is you'd be sold, um, you'd be sold in the wrong part of a, of a bookshop, and possibly not in a bookshop anyway, but in, and that often uncivilly lurid covers on railway stations. <laughs> Well, I was thinking, well, you know, well, TV hasn't hadn't been too bad, but with Quatermass and that, you know, they had their science fiction the movies, kind of, kind of canny, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, anyway, so that's, that's how come I decided to uh, found a science fiction theatre, which I eventually did in, uh, in Liverpool, it's, that's why it's called the Science Fiction Theatre of Liverpool. That we struck off with, uh, that we started with, rather, was. Um, Illuminatus, uh, which advertised these uh, three books by Robert Shadow and Tom Wilson. And, and it was a, and a good old do. And it lasted all day. What I did was I based the dramatic structure of the, of the thing on a science fiction conference. You mean, say, you, you get uh, mind boggling information and stuff, you know, and antics going on. Uh, it was very successful, and actually, <coughs> 
uh, it, it came out of the warehouse in Liverpool, uh, off to Amsterdam, and then wound up as being uh, the production which opened the Cottesloe Theatre of the National Theatre, Marvellous. Um, that then, I mean, uh, I'll be back to Roger Ease and his fruit bar, you'll see why I'm bothering to do it. Anyway, but, anyway so that was, yeah, was 1976. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was at the Cottesloe in 1997. And um, then time was going by, we did some other science fiction productions, but nothing sort of had the cloud of this all-day Illuminatus thing, you know. And I was, then, uh, then, uh, then as luck would have it, I encountered uh, uh, this extraordinary fellow, Neil Aram. Neil Aram, uh, he was kind of diseased in a way. He was diseased by, um, by memory. You know, I mean, like, like, he never forgot anything. I mean, you know, once you realise, you, you know, you're going to remember a lot. You know, you're not nothing, he'd, he'd lost it, I don't know, he'd never you know, right? been the, the editing thing where you had your remember, you know, stuff you need to remember a lot, you know. So, uh, so he realised he'd got to make his life interesting. And he realised rather, rather cleverly that, that that meant ruling out fame, because fame is kind of boring. You know? So what, he, what he'd done, he, he, he devoted his life to meeting remote and remarkable and obscure and alarming and extraordinary people. Yeah. And so, um, well, one day I sat him down, because he could remember everything. Well, in no time at all, we'd written the longest play in the world. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, anyway, let's be brief, we, uh, we put it on. And by then, a whole bunch, about 50 or 60 enthusiasts, all gathered together. The thing was, uh, was, um, was actually successful. It kind of ran through, on and off, for about a year. Um, we didn't do it every night. Uh, you know, it's at weekends, uh, really. Uh, yeah, that's so, see the Guinness Book of Records, yeah? Longest play. The longest recorded theatrical production, is, I mean, it's, it's not worth buying the Guinness Book of Records, it's going to be after 1983. <laughs> <laughs> the longest recorded theatrical production of Men the Walk by Neil Oram, directed by Ken Campbell, a ten-part play cycle, played at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Mal London. Um, 18th to 20th of January, 1979. Russell Denton was on the stage for all but five minutes of the 18 hours, five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> three intermissions, um, a total of three hours, ten minutes. So, you know, so, that. Russell Denton was fantastic, too. I mean, he learned about five and a half times handling it in length. And he learned it in three weeks, and he really rarely knew it, you know? Uh, extraordinary performance, uh, and then all, they, they would have carried on. I mean, uh, 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 there was other places would have uh, had the production, but suddenly Russell said he wouldn't, he, he didn't want to do it anymore. And um, then when he didn't want to do that anymore, he realised there wasn't anything else to be done, you know. And so he, he retired from acting and became some kind of gardener. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Russell, Denton, but that was this. It was 1979. <laughs> And so, uh, it's just important to be aware of this, you see, because I, so I kind of regarded myself as some kind of king, an emperor of um, the ridiculously long production. <laughs> and then, um, in 1980, um, the Royal Shakespeare Company, at the time uh, headed by um, Trevor Nunn and uh, Terry Hands, Something they were putting on this mighty long Nicholas Nickleby. Nicholas Nickleby was um, over eight hours long. Uh, you, you saw it generally four. You know, it's in part one, one night. That was four hours, and then four and a bit for uh, for part two. 
anyway, um, when I thought you thought, you know, I better see what, what they're up to, it was kind of treading on my ground. <laughs> <laughs> And um, anyway, so I, I, um, I went along to, and um, actually, that's sort of part one, anyway, I booked for part one, I'm going to say part two a couple, a couple of weeks later. And um, it was, in fact, incredibly good. Uh, in those days, we had, a, in Britain and America, there was a really flourishing, very inventive uh, fringe and experimental theatre scene. What um, Nunn and his, uh, his partner in the production have done in Nicholas Nickleby is they've actually taken elements, you know, bits like they pinch bits from the from the uh, more exciting bits of uh, the frame, right? And, and it was in their production. I mean, they didn't kind of miss a, a trick that was worthwhile. And one of the novelties of it was that the uh, cast, when they, were, when they weren't actually involved in the thing, would be, be sort of like trotting around, passing through, walking up the roads even, you know, like fancy, they would sit and watch it with you for a bit. <laughs> anyway, I was in the second row from the front, and uh, what was um, terrific was that uh, the um, actress playing uh, Kate Nickleby was a one-time girlfriend of mine called Susan Lippler, and she spotted me in the, uh, you know, Shakespeare Company letterhead 
So it pretty much looked like it, but actually was a bit different in, in, a, in, a, in one or two details. And they said, well, well, well how many sheets do you want? I said, two hours and um, he said, well, he said it would take a couple of hours, I suppose. He said, you know, if, if you can get us an original. I said, anyway, so I ran around. Anyway, a friend of, friend of a friend, I had a letter from the Royal Shakespeare Company just recently. He was an actor, a young actor. And it was actually from Trevor Nunn. And it uh, signed, blah, 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 yeah, it love Trev, it said. Anyway, he gave, he gave me this letter. And I, I, um, I took it off to Open Head Press, and they uh, they modified it so that, in, in fact, this is a photocopy of it, so that they're actually short, um, like that. You know, that, 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 that. That's how it was. So that it it reads uh, RDC Royal Royal Dickens Theatre. And then Terry Johnson, now an award-winning playwright, but in those days, he was just one of the others who had been the great thing about Terry was that he'd, he'd seen Nicholas Nickleby, and he'd just read Little Dorrit. So I said to him, hmm. I said, how would you cast Nicholas Nickleby, you know, the cast of Nicholas Nickleby, how would you cast them into Little Dorrit, Terry? And so he did it. There's a, a, a photocopy of how how Terry did it, working out what they were going to have a cast with. Um, right. um, and then I, I sent off, uh, well I wrote out, anyway, a letter to everyone in the cast, all, all, all the cast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, is, this is the one that would have gone to uh, Suzanne Bertich. Uh, dear Suzanne, as you probably heard, there's been a major policy change. Uh, um, the, the first production of the new RDC is hopefully Little Dorrit, adapted by Snow Wilson and directed by John Kerr and myself. It's early days yet, Suzanne, if you'd like to look at the part of Fanny Dorrit, we can have a chat about it later in the year. Anyway, I got to the, I covered the cast, and then I thought, well, I better, you know, better send um, one to all the, um, the in-house directors, you know what I mean? And, uh, <laughs> Terry Hannah, that's how they all got got them and then, and then it was still, actually I got loads of paper over, and so uh, I alerted the Arts Council, the Minister for the Arts, uh, yeah, uh, anyway, I mean it was, it was really interesting, I mean, and then, and then, uh, and then, I, then I really got, um, Really got it together then. I thought, you know, if I, you know, if I was, this was really real, why don't we get it so it's really real? So I mean, really, it's really trapped, you know. And I got um, really inspired and creative. I mean, I really put put together. I mean, I had a team from all different parts of the of the theatrical profession. You know, like uh, um, got got letters encouraging them to uh, look into. Anyway, anyway, um, then uh, the the, the marvellous thing is that you know, the pile of letters and then. You know, you post them off. And it's that moment before we're like, well, it's just like it is. You <laughs> <laughs> send them off. And then, then you kind of get hoaxes as blues for a bit. Because <laughs> <laughs> there, there's nothing you can do about anything now. <laughs> you know, and that's that. And I mean, I didn't, and I mean, and I, 
I've never had anything. I, I didn't know Trevor or anything, you know. And um, anyway, then it was, then it was uh, time for me to go along and see part two of Nicholas Nickleby. And uh, the hour was in the end of that. And I guess part two was probably as good as part one, but I can hardly watch it. Because he's done a rework campaign, and wow. And I was trying to think, well, you know, what, what they've been cast as in Dorrit. <laughs> <laughs> She said, um, she said, I'm oh, worried, it's a hoax. No, she said, but nobody really knows, she said, because, uh, you know, she told me a bit about the letter she got, I mean, I couldn't buy it. And, um, <laughs> and uh, she said, but we don't know because Trevor's away on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, then he got back from holiday. <laughs> Shakespeare's name stands absurdly too high and will go down, Lord Byron said in 1814. This month it looked as if the bard had finally been toppled from um, his pinnacle by the unlikely contender of a novelist, Charles Dickens. The Royal Shakespeare Company's success, something like that, um, with its Dickens adaptation, Nicholas Nickleby has brought the company more than just an unfulfilled clamour for tickets. It has also given rise to a hoax that is causing much embarrassment in the theatre world. <laughs> Trevor Nunn, the RSC's joint artistic director, said yesterday that someone whose identity they could not discover <laughs> had produced thousands of sheets of Immaculately printed in exactly the company's style, but instead of RSC at the top, the notepaper said RDC, Royal Dickens Theatre. As a quote now, on this news, on this notepaper, the hoaxer has written to hundreds of people working in the theatre, offering them the chance to do productions with this new company, which has abandoned Shakespeare. Each letter has been sent as if from Mr. Nunn, signed Love Trev. <laughs> It is now deeply embarrassing. A lot of people have written to me refusing, or even more embarrassing, accepting me. <laughs> Mr. Nunn said. He said the people were chosen very carefully. Thus John Barton, well known for his adaptations of Shakespeare and Greek tragedies, was asked to finish the mystery of Edwin Drew. <laughs> Dear Michael, blah, 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 blah. It's early days yet, Michael, but would you look at sketches by Bowles and let me have your reaction? It's great if you could adapt yourself and include circus stunts. Other letters went to such dis 
different people as uh, Sir Roy Shaw, Secretary General of the Arts Council, <laughs> and Peter Cheeseman, who runs the Victoria Theatre at Stoke-on-Trent. And the, the letter to him went something like, for too long now, Peter, Albert, have we been apart? Is it, uh, would, would you consider uh, hard times? Send <laughs> 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 Uh, your plans for adaptation of the Aldrich Auditorium. That's <laughs> <laughs> rare. <laughs> 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 and he did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one letter sent to um, Mr. Norman St. John Stevens, Minister of the Arts, read Dear Minister, as you've probably heard, there's been a major policy change in our organisation. Nicholas Nickleby has been such a source of real joy to cast, staff and audience that we have decided to turn to Dickens as our main source of inspiration. As someone said at a recent meeting, why tie so many fine Dickensian directors and actors to this endless wheel of Shakespeare revivals? <laughs> I am convinced that Dickens will prove as big a draw as Shakespeare if we can keep up this terrific standard. So that'll be it for the Bard as soon as our present commitments decently permit. <laughs> the first production of the new RTC is hoped to be Little Dorrit, adapted by Snoo Wilson and directed by John Caird and myself. Any thoughts you have on this will as always be treasured. Love train. <laughs> yes, perhaps we can get together for lunch sometime soon to discuss this. <laughs> Club would seem appropriate. Yeah, Terry, this was a difficult letter to write because this was Terry Hands, he's kind of only, only, only just um, slightly junior partner and things. Dear Terry, I'm sorry to spring this on you, but I've instituted a major policy. <laughs> <laughs> the whole experience of Nicholas Nickleby was such a source of joy and inspiration. In fact, it was for me a spiritual cleansing. <laughs> I'm clear it has to be done. Now, many fine Dickensian actors was no longer be tied to this endless wheel of Shakespeare revivals. Someone said this at some meeting or other. Was it? I divine that our break with the barge should be sudden and clear, which is why I didn't bother discussing it. <laughs> With staff at the Aldwych Theatre in London arriving one morning to find that every Nicholas Nickleby poster had been covered by another in exactly the RSC house style, advertising the future production of Little Diary. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a beautiful piece of work um, by my own head press as well, was the, uh, was the poster. They, they took the, the old drawing of Little Diary and they just stood it around a bit, and there she was, and all the, all the cast names down there in alphabetical order. Um, oh, yeah, incidentally, what happened was um, I was in Liverpool. But they had, I, um, I, was working in, I was working in Liverpool, and um, I got a phone call from Newsnight. To be in 1981, uh, uh, I got this phone call from Newsnight. 
And they said, we accuse you of being behind the Royal Dickens uh, hoax. I always thought it was James Fenton. I thought about it, and, um, and, 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 and I went back, the researchers of the news, and I, I said, yeah, no, actually, it, it was me. Yeah. And um, they said, oh, terrific. They said, uh, they said, we made a little film. We filmed Trev. We're going to do it. It's the tag end, you know, with yeah, a little uplift at the end of a news night. And they said, would I go to the studio here in Manchester, actually? Uh, would I head over from Liverpool and be in the Manchester news night studio? And, you know, send a car and everything. Anyway, I was drinking quite, quite hugely in the for the morning before setting off. And then when you get there, I mean, the, uh, it's, it's very lavish, the entertainment, if you're you know, going to be a news night novelty. It's a whole trolley load of possibilities. And, uh, <laughs> 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 and it, was, it was kind of like this, you see, because I was in the, uh, in the, in the, in the news night, uh, you know, waiting to, waiting to be on. And then on the monitor, they, they, we were suddenly into it, and they were playing this little little film they've made of uh, Trev, you know, describing him and how horrific he could be, you know. Uh, you know. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, embarrassment, you know, of it. And um, at, at, at the end of it, they said, you know, if you ever found out who it was, what would you do? And he said, and I, I'd never seen him before, I realised, I hadn't seen him before, and he, he got there. Yeah, he's not the sheriff of Nottingham. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of looked at the camera and he said, uh, I would throw down the gauntlet, he said. Oh, uh, that's kind of the end, end of the thing. And they, and they said, well, we actually have got the perpetrator of this uh, in the studio in Manchester. And then I can see myself <laughs> on the monitor. And they lit me in terrorist lighting. <laughs> God, I can't land poor Susan in it, you know, start to let <laughs> Roger Reese's pricking his fruit. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 he said, I don't know about that, he said, well, it's a, it's a damn fine idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, and listen, just, uh, it wasn't long uh, uh, before he, was, he, he died, uh, Lindsay Anderson, he, um, he, he called me over to uh, his place in the Swiss cottage he used to live. And, um, I don't, I don't know why he'd invited me over. It seemed like he just wanted to tell me of a few additions to his shit list. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like, I mean, I told him, I said, I think Richard Ayres, uh, you know, Sir Richard Ayres, I said, I think Richard Ayres all right, you know. I really do. And uh, anyway, Richard Ayres, he did get to do a production, and he'd he, he, he done it. I said, oh, how, was, how was Richard Ayres? He said he was fine, he was very good. I said, well, and he said, when I came. Yeah. And I said, there you are, see, so, so Richard was all right. He said, yes, he was, he said, he's a little shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, 
I, I said to Lindsay Anderson, I'm not having it, I'm not I said, uh, this is trying to get, you know, get a laugh out of him. I said, this is a little, I said, Lindsay, did you know that when the um, late great American science fiction author Theodore Sturgeon was interviewed by his squire, his squire said, yes, yes, Mr. Sturgeon, but 90% um, of science fiction is crap. To which Sturgeon had replied, well, 90% of everything is crap. And uh, Anderson went, He said, when was that interview? I said, I don't know, I was in 1964, I think. He said, it's got a lot worse since then. <laughs> <laughs> and he went over to his, uh, over to his uh, drawer, he pulled out, and he, he pulled out this. Dear Lindsay, as you've probably heard, <laughs> Thinking of you, Lindsay, brings the old curiosity shop to mind. <laughs> <laughs> what a coup if you bring Sir Ralph and Sir John together again in a script by David's story for this venture. I feel your cool, intelligent approach is going to be badly needed here in these new times. I look forward to hearing your reactions. Love, <laughs> Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast, was produced and presented by Daisy Campbell and David Bramwell, with kind permission from the Ken Campbell Estate. Music was by Horton Jupiter. It was funded by Arts Council England. The disembodied voice of Ken was Jeremy Stockwell.